This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey, everyone. You will hear an unbleeped curse word or two in this episode. All right, as you were. When I asked reporter Brandy Buckman what it was like inside the E. Barrett Prettyman courthouse last week in D.C., her answer surprised me. It was basically like, imagine it's the end of summer camp, except it's the worst summer camp you've ever been to. You could call it the summer of sedition. Brandy's been following along as first four Oath Keepers got sentenced for their role on January 6th. And then five members of the Proud Boys learned their fate. Many of them were charged with the rarely prosecuted crime of seditious conspiracy. That is the organized encouragement of rebellion against the government. It's a crime that's almost never brought in front of a jury at all. It's even less common that it's successfully prosecuted. The evidence was overwhelmingly strong. The final sentencing was for Henry Enrique Tario, the leader of the Proud Boys. He stood in front of the judge in an orange jumpsuit and a full beard. And when he spoke, it was the first time he'd opened his mouth at trial. It was a plea for mercy, sort of. You know, he sort of played everything down and said that he had doubts about whether or not the election was stolen in December of 2020, right before the Stop the Steal rally. But yet he told the court he didn't opt to sort of turn away or get away from what he was doing because he felt like he would be criticized or ridiculed. And I found that to be a particularly difficult argument to believe because so much of what we saw and so much of what we know about Tario as a figurehead on the far right, um, you know, this is a person, he doesn't take orders from anybody. His whole brand is bravado. Right, exactly. How long of a sentence did the judge give Tario? For Tario, 22 years. Wow. And the government was asking for 33. That's the longest sentence of any of the people who've been charged with crimes for January 6th. It is. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, I was thinking about this credo the Proud Boys have, F around and find out. Like, there's there's video of them chanting it on January 6th while they're marching, you know, with a Washington monument in the background. Do you feel like Enrique Tario and his, his co-defendants feel like they've F'd around and found out at this point? I don't think that there's anything inside of these folks that thinks, oh, you know, I, I really I really got to take a step back here and I got to think about what I'm doing because I, quote unquote, just found out. I mean, I, I don't think that that largely exists for them. Today on the show, the government just handed down some of the longest prison terms yet for January 6th. Will it make a difference? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around.
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So, Brandy, you've had something like a front row seat to all the sedition proceedings in D.C. I'm just wondering, what's it been like to experience the justice system up close like this? Because you, how how many of the trials have been have you watched? I've covered all of the Oath Keepers first sedition uh, trial, and then all of the Proud Boys seditious conspiracy trial. You know, I was outside of the Capitol on January 6th. I was covering the certification that day. I watched all of that happen up close and personal. And then I pretty much have been devoting my beat um, to unwinding that day since it happened. And so to get to that point and to finally see all of these people in the room and in some cases to hear them talk, uh, it was very intense. You know, it was there. These are historical cases and they have major legal importance, I think, for our country going forward. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about two organized groups here, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Can you just lay out for us what they were both doing on January 6th? Yeah. So kind of key difference and key thing to understand about these two groups. Now, the leader of the Proud Boys and the leader of the Oath Keepers, uh, Henry Tario and Elmer Stewart Rhodes, they were at least in contact one time before the insurrection, at least one time. And that was on January 5th. Would you call it coordinating? I wouldn't call it coordinating because I I don't have enough to support that as a statement. And that's not what the government pursued. But I think that when you sort of look at all of the information, and we know that they met in this garage on the 5th. A lot of this meeting got caught on tape. There was a documentary crew following Tario around, and prosecutors released the footage. There was some coordination that existed in the sense that there was this moment where we listened to the video from the garage, and there's a voice in the garage who says, you know, we have to do it together, and we have to do it fast. Huh. I mean, that sounds a little bit like coordination. <laughs> it sure does. But the problem was the voice was off camera and nobody could identify who the speaker was. And so the government didn't particularly push for that because it would be a hearsay issue. So, you know, I think that that didn't totally get resolved. But what we did see was that both of their groups benefited from one another being there to effectively stop Congress from doing its certification. Because they defended each other? Not so much that they defended each other, but if all of these forces were acting separately, the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys were acting separately that day, as far as we know, they certainly benefited from their you know, mutual concerted actions to break down barriers, get past police and get into stop proceedings. I want to focus in on Henry Enrique Tario and what happened with him, both because his sentence was the longest and also the most recent. I'm wondering if you can just start off by telling me the story of Enrique Tario's January 6th, because 
as many people have noted, he wasn't even there that day. But really, his January 6th started a few days before. So can you explain how? His January 6th started more than a few days before. I think, you know, what we found was he formed a group inside of the Proud Boys called the Ministry of Self-Defense. This was after Trump had made the stand back, stand by comment on December 19th at the presidential debates. This is when Trump was asked to basically back away from... To disavow them. Yeah, and he did not. Proud Boys... Stand back and stand by. But and like- what we found, and this, uh, you know, really came out at Proud Boys, was that was like a clarion call. That was a huge recruitment um, uh, effort. By the time the election rolled around, a month or so later, the Proud Boys were ready to defend Trump no matter what. They set up camp in D.C., making the city's oldest hotel into their unofficial headquarters, They roamed the streets, looking to fight with people they claimed were Antifa. The month before the Capitol riots, Enrique Tarrio himself got accused of ripping down a Black Lives Matter banner from in front of a historically Black church and burning it. There were consequences for that. When Tarrio returned to D.C. to take part in January 6th, D.C. police arrested him, and he was actually forced to leave town. But Brandy says that's exactly what he wanted. His arrest in the fourth was something that he had calculated. I think he knew that it would ultimately inspire uh, fellow Proud Boys to react on the six. It would kind of mobilize them. And incidentally, what we saw in footage from the six were lots of Proud Boys walking around with T-shirts that said Enrique Cario did nothing wrong. I think that he wanted to just really kind of whip everyone into a frenzy. Tario knew and other leaders knew that they could manipulate people's outrage in such a way to mobilize them to show up on the 6th. And that's more or less what happened. But as for Tario, after he got arrested, you know, he went to a hotel in Baltimore after he went to an underground meeting with Rhodes um, in D.C. That meeting in the garage. That's right. And he uh, he sat and he watched. He watched the rioting unfold. He watched the violence unfold. Was he egging it on? Yes, he was. Um, We saw text messages where when someone would say to him, um, you know, what to do or what they thought of it, he said, uh, make no mistake, we did this. I mean, you really can't get more clear than that. It's hard to get outside of an argument that you didn't commit seditious conspiracy when you're saying things like that. And then on top of this, after the fact, and this was another sticking point for Tario, both at trial and at sentencing, after January 6th, when a fellow Proud Boy asked him, well, what's next? His response was, do it again. The government didn't seem to get exactly what it was asking for when it came to the sentencing of the Proud Boys. Like, they were asking for more than 30 years for Enrique Tario. He got 22, which was the longest so far. But still, that's quite off the mark for what the prosecutors wanted. What do you make of that? So I think what it sort of boiled down to with Judge Kelly and the Proud Boys was that he made this distinction where he was willing to apply terrorism enhancements to some of the charges. Where he ended up ultimately departing from the government was while he was willing to label some of these charges terrorism and and apply, you know, stiffer sentences accordingly. Kelly didn't feel that the Proud Boys had what's enumerated in some of these statutes for terrorism, that they had intent to kill. 
And he made a point of talking about that at each of their sentencings. You have to ask yourself, well, if they didn't intend to kill, or at least there was no proof, no definitive proof at trial that said, absolutely, this is they intended to go there not just to stop the certification, but also to kill a bunch of lawmakers. If they didn't intend to kill, well, what were they intending to do? And we saw how violent people were in trying to get past police. And we saw all of what was going on around that. You know, the guillotine out on the lawn, the people saying, kill Mike Pence. But still, for comparison, like Confederate President Jefferson Davis was jailed for two years before being released without a trial. So it it is these sentences are longer than that. These are very long sentences. And, you know, this is an unpopular thing to say. And I understand and this is a distinction I like to make, but I understand people are very angry and they want justice and they're they're outraged and they they do not like uh the proud boys ideology they do not like the oath keepers i understand all of that but at the end of the day 10 years is a long time to sit in a prison cell uh 15 years is a long time 17 18 22 years these are more than a decade apiece for each of these proud boys it is a long time to sit in jail and to be away from liberty your liberties your family your life And I think that there's an argument that what they're given is quite punitive and will hopefully be a deterrent. But only time will tell on that. After the break, what's going to happen to a group like the Proud Boys now that its leaders are behind bars? All in all, five leaders of the Proud Boys got sentenced for their crimes over the last few days, including Henry Enrique Tario. For Brandy, these sentencing hearings were a little strange to watch because so many of the men put on these really emotional shows for the judge. Adam Pizzola, a former Marine who was one of the first rioters to bust through a Senate window, teared up as he promised he was done with politics. Joseph Biggs, the only Proud Boy to breach the Capitol twice, was crying too. And Ethan Nordeen, a Proud Boy leader from Washington State, offered the judge an apology and called January 6th a tragedy. But then they received their sentences. After hearing he was going to go away for 10 years, Adam Pizzola pumped his fist and said Trump won. Both Biggs and Nordeen called into a January 6th vigil after being told they were going to spend more than a decade behind bars. Biggs told the crowd the government can kiss his ass. And so for all of Biggs's blubbering, and he cried quite a bit when he was sentenced, for all of his blubbering before the judge, it was a completely different song and dance that he was performing the next day. I don't really get the strategy here, but maybe you can explain it to me. Like, is it just that he doesn't see the judge as his audience anymore? I think like even when we were going through the trial, when the trial was active, um, Tario made a phone call to some podcast and he compared his his strife to Nelson Mandela. Um, and ironically, Stuart Rhodes also compared himself to Nelson Mandela um, after trial. Why they do this, what makes them do this, who they think they're talking to. I think that they're talking to the group of people who they believe will buy into their propaganda. I think they do it as a grift. I think that maybe there's also a chance, sure, they think that they are innocent. And sure, they think that their First Amendment rights were violated. Is the hope simply pardons here? Yeah, I mean, 
for sure. That's a big part of it. It seems like a high risk, high reward strategy. Yeah, it is. I mean, look, they're not going anywhere. And so the only way they're going to keep the the money coming in and to keep, uh, you know, to, to keep people on their side is to keep up the same exact routine that they've kept up this whole time. So it's just a lot of the same. And I think it's also it's also important, like these groups were really hobbled by these uh, convictions in terms of the Oath Keepers as an organization, the Proud Boys as an organization, the top figureheads of these organizations, you know, they were they're gone. They're gone. But that doesn't mean that there's this like uh, vacuum where all of the remaining extremist groups out there in, in the United States, like Adam Waffen or Patriot Front or the Three Percenters or any of these groups, you know, they will be, I'm sure, more than happy to come into that vacuum. Um, and that's the thing. It's like they know, I think the Proud Boys especially know who's listening to them and they still want to save face and they still believe in their organization. When we had defense witnesses at trial. Some of our defense witnesses uh, quite literally showed up in Proud Boys colors um, to to testify on behalf of the Proud Boys. Yeah. I mean, you're you're referencing this kind of don't back down idea that seems very clear from all of these folks. And I was thinking about that because I read this New York Times coverage of what happened in the Proud Boys sentencing And the reporter wrote this line, and I just wanted to get your reaction to it. He said, the Justice Department has all but decapitated the Proud Boys' national leadership and mostly put an end to its involvement in large-scale and often violent pro-Trump rallies in cities across the country. Is that the complete picture of what's happened here? I don't know. I don't think it's the complete picture. You know, I think that it's true um, that we have certainly, you know, as the person said, decapitated the, the the heads of these organizations, and that helps. But we also sort of know how extremism has historically worked in this country. Um, once it's put under the white hot light of scrutiny, uh, it tends to kind of fizzle out or fall apart or crumble a little, and then it burrows itself down and back into the underground. But now we have this situation in America where a lot of that stuff is not being burrowed. It's not, you know, people are not ashamed um, to have these really wild, wildly racist, wildly misogynist, you know, far right views. And so I think that there might have been some damage done to these organizations. But so long as individuals like Ron DeSantis, individuals like Donald Trump and the like, are out there sort of promoting this xenophobic, you know, uh, wildly um, white supremacist adjacent or white supremacist worldview, um, there's always going to be an audience that'll kind of glom onto that and then feel like, oh, well, it's acceptable because it's out in the public. And what we've seen since these Proud Boys have been on trial, since the Oath Keepers have been on trial, are extremist groups showing up at LGBTQ events, showing up, you know, showing up to intimidate and effectively terrorize people in their communities and make people who are not a part of their groups feel like they don't belong. And so did the, you know, did did these sentences hurt the Proud Boys? Oh yeah, sure. Did it hurt the Oath Keepers as an organization? Absolutely. I don't doubt that. But is this the end of it? I, I don't think so. Because we know historically that, um, Convictions are great. They serve as a certain kind of deterrence, but it's a larger cultural issue that we're dealing with here. Hmm. Many folks have made the point that these seditious conspiracy sentencings are kind of 
the end of one era and the beginning of the next, by which I mean the next phase of January 6th prosecutions is really looking at people like Donald Trump himself, people who were doing something other than storming the Capitol. I sort of wonder what you think these prosecutions that just ended tell you, if anything, about this next phase. And I ask that because I feel like I look at, for instance, the sentencing of Enrique Tarrio, and I think he looks a little like Trump on January 6th. He's not storming the Capitol. He's somewhere else tweeting. (laughs) You know, he's doing something very different. Yeah, I mean, I think that the cases here that have ended do sort of set the stage for what's coming um, for for Donald Trump in D.C. with his trial in March. You know, there's no sedition charges involved with Trump's case in, in the D.C. federal court. But what there is is, um, you know, the, the the conspiracy, the effort to obstruct proceedings. And I think that what happened at the trials was this interesting dichotomy of the defense saying, well, you know, the Proud Boys were a scapegoat for Donald Trump because a person like Donald Trump could never be prosecuted for these crimes. And they're just being used as, you know, a wedge. But Donald Trump got prosecuted or has got indicted for those crimes. Um, he is not above the law. We have found that out and we will see how this all progresses. But I think that what it says is, you know, look, he helped inspire people to come storm the gates He uh, allegedly, Trump allegedly did this because he felt there was no last option available to him to stay in power. And so while the conspiracies are not the same between Trump and the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers for that matter, you know, what we're looking at is the cause and effect that goes on here. How his behavior motivated people to show up and basically fuel their own conspiracies. Trump lit the match and they, you know, everything else caught on fire. Brandy, I'm so grateful for your time and your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. Brandy Buckman is an independent journalist who covered the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys trials. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here tomorrow. <laughs> 